and welcome to today's episode of Her Story. Thanks so much for tuning in again. This is Chloe. And I'm Allie. In this podcast episode, we wanted to laser in on one salient aspect of American history and government, the Supreme Court. And given that our name is Her Story, as you might be able to guess, we'll be discussing the history and impact of the women on the court. Since its first assembly in 1790, there have been about 115 justices that have served on the nation's highest court. Want to guess how many have been female? Not enough? Yup. In the 230 years since the court's creation, there have only been six women justices. The newest one, Katanji Brown Jackson, was sworn in a couple of weeks ago. Alright, maybe we should rewind a little. How did the Supreme Court even come into existence? Good question. The Supreme Court was established as part of the United States Constitution, the guiding document upon which our country's laws and government functions are based. In 1787, as the Founding Fathers deliberated over how to design a government for the newly independent America, their main goal was to avoid conceiving a legislative body that was anything like the absolutist monarchy they'd just won their independence from. Cough, cough, Great Britain. With this in mind, they devised a government composed of three branches, executive, legislative, and judicial, each with independent rights and capacities. This division of government is called separation of powers, or checks and balances. The executive branch is the president, the chief commander, the legislative branch is made up of elected representatives, or Congress, and the judicial branch consists of nine justices who compose the Supreme Court. The system was designed to ensure that no one branch could exert too much power. The duty of the Supreme Court is to guard and interpret the Constitution and make decisions about how the country's laws should be applied. The court hears cases that have made their way up past all the local, district, and state courts and have reached the federal level. Since the Supreme Court is the highest in the land, its rulings become national precedent. The court is composed of nine members, so five justices need to be in agreement for there to be a majority consensus on a case. And with that, let's dive into our main point of conversation. As Chloe mentioned, the Supreme Court's introductory assembly was in 1790. The first woman on the court wasn't appointed until 1981, almost 200 years later. It's time for a woman to sit among the nation's highest jurists, Ronald Reagan announced during his campaign for the presidency in 1980. Once elected, he vowed to find the most qualified candidate he could. His search led him to Sandra Day O'Connor. O'Connor was originally from El Paso, Texas, and had graduated from Stanford Law School. She worked in Arizona as an assistant attorney general and was a justice on the Arizona Court of Appeals when Reagan tapped her as his nominee. She was unanimously confirmed by the Senate and took office in August of 1981. Initially, liberals celebrated her appointment, but the enthusiasm from feminist progressives subsided when, in her first year, O'Connor established herself as a member of the conservative bloc of the court. But O'Connor's voting choices evolved with the times. Although she was in favor of states' rights and strict laws on crime, she was notably a swing voter on issues such as affirmative action, abortion, and religion. She voted in the assenting in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, a 1992 case that upheld Roe v. Wade. By the end of her judicial career, she was described as a centrist. O'Connor retired in 2006 after two and a half decades of service to the court. One of the most interesting things about Sandra Day O'Connor, in my opinion, was her commitment to civil discourse that incorporated perspectives from all sides of the political aisle. Compared to the extremely polarized court that we see today, O'Connor's decisions were much less partisan, and in her personal life, she was known for hosting dinners for lawmakers of both parties to come together. That's a really fascinating tidbit. O'Connor may have been the first woman on the court for a period of time, but soon enough she was joined by perhaps the most famous female justice of all time, the renowned Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The notorious RBG! 
Ginsburg was born in New York and studied law at Harvard and Columbia. She worked as a legal clerk, taught law, and campaigned for women's rights before being tapped for the U.S. Court of Appeals by President Jimmy Carter in 1980. Bill Clinton appointed her to the Supreme Court in 1993, and she was confirmed the same year. Ginsburg was known for being a dedicated fighter for gender equality. During her time in law school, she was heckled for allegedly taking a man's spot in the class, and she juggled her coursework with motherhood and caring for a sick husband. She had difficulty finding a job because of firm's reluctance to hire women, but eventually made her way up the corporate ladder. Once on the Supreme Court, she was tireless in her commitment to pushing for women's rights. Soft-spoken in her demeanor, but fierce in her passion for social justice, Ginsburg was a committed progressive and wrote many majority opinions on rulings that gave women access to the same opportunities as men. By the time she was in her 80s, she had become a revered feminist icon among women of all ages and the subject of much popular culture media. She died just two years ago, but her trailblazing legacy on the court lives on. Wow, what an impressive life. And our next woman is a New Yorker as well, just like you, Allie. That's right. Sonia Sotomayor was born to Puerto Rican immigrants in the Bronx. She was high school valedictorian and attended Princeton University and Yale Law School, where she co-chaired the Latin American and Native American Students Association. She worked tirelessly during her time in school to campaign for Puerto Rican rights and equality. Sotomayor began work as a prosecutor in New York before transitioning into private practice. In 1991, President George H.W. Bush nominated her to the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, where she mainly dealt with non-controversial cases. Six years later, Bill Clinton appointed her to the U.S. Court of Appeals, where she kept a low profile for the next decade. Barack Obama nominated her to the Supreme Court in 2009 upon the retirement of another justice, and she was easily confirmed, making her the first Latina on the court. In the last 13 years, Sonia Sotomayor has established herself as a liberal, dynamic justice well-known for grilling unprepared attorneys and demonstrating a sophisticated understanding of legal doctrine. She's been a strong advocate for affirmative action, affordable health care, and same-sex marriage. To many, her life story is viewed as a classic example of the promise of the American dream, a daughter of immigrants who worked her way up to the highest court in the land. Shout out to those of you who took the AP language exam this past year. I'm sure Sotomayor rings a bell. And now on to our third New York-born justice, Elena Kagan. Kagan attended Princeton University for her undergraduate degree and then moved on to Harvard Law School. She wore a myriad of hats before her appointment to the Supreme Court. Professor at the University of Chicago, Associate Counsel of Bill Clinton, and Dean of Harvard Law. In 2008, Barack Obama appointed Kagan to be the first woman solicitor general, and the year after, he nominated her to the Supreme Court. Kagan was a unique appointment in that she became the youngest sitting justice, as well as the only one without previous judicial tenure. This has given Kagan a distinct experience as a justice. Because of her position in the Clinton administration, she had to recuse herself from many cases during her first session on the Supreme Court to avoid a conflict of interest. She's made herself well known for her deep knowledge of issues concerning the First Amendment, as well as for being the justice most in touch with popular culture. Although she's a member of the court's liberal bloc, she's considered the most moderate among the group. Our next appointee joined the court more recently, during the fall of the 2020 election season, actually. Allie, do you remember what made Justice Amy Coney Barrett's nomination so significant? If you'll recall, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away in September of 2020, just months before the election. 
Although her dying wish was not to be replaced until the new president's installation, sitting President Donald Trump rushed his nominee through the confirmation process, aided by the Republican-dominated Senate. This was so significant because a couple of years prior, the Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell had refused to hold confirmation hearings for one of President Barack Obama's court nominees, citing the excuse that they must wait until after the election. Exactly. Amy Coney Barrett was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and attended Rhodes College in Tennessee and Notre Dame Law School. Barrett clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia following her law school graduation. Beginning in 2002, she returned to Notre Dame and worked as a law professor at the school before President Trump nominated her to the Seventh Circuit in 2017. Once Justice Ginsburg died, Trump tapped Barrett to fill her seat. She was confirmed in a 52-48 vote. Barrett is deeply religious, which led to many liberal politicians expressing concerns that her court tenure would be inordinately influenced by her faith. She is conservative and has voted against the Affordable Care Act, Roe v. Wade, and vaccine mandates. And now our final woman of the day, the newly confirmed Katanji Brown-Jackson. Jackson was sworn into her position just over a month ago, replacing the retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. Jackson was born in Washington, D.C. and attended Harvard for her undergraduate degree and for law school. She then worked as a legal clerk and in private practice before President Obama nominated her to serve on the U.S. District Court for D.C. in 2013. She held the position for eight years, before briefly becoming a circuit judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for D.C. in 2021. When Justice Breyer announced his impending retirement, President Biden tapped Justice Jackson for the Supreme Court, fulfilling a campaign promise to appoint a black woman. Jackson's voting record throughout her time in lower courts reflects her belief in reproductive health service access, environmental protection, and immigrants' rights. She will begin her career on the nation's highest court during the next session in the fall of 2022. So, now that we've given a brief chronology of these women's careers and court impacts, why don't we touch on the case ruling that's probably been on all of our minds since it was announced last June, Dobbs v. Jackson, also known as the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade was a landmark decision that guaranteed the constitutional right to an abortion and was settled in 1973. Nearly 50 years later, the court overturned that decision in the case Dobbs v. Jackson and decided in a 5-4 ruling that making abortion laws should be left to the individual states. The implications of this are cosmic for women's rights. Taking away the freedom to choose whether or not to have an abortion removes a woman's bodily autonomy and can place upon her an enormous health and financial burden. Mandating carriage to term pregnancy forces women to birth children that they may not be emotionally or economically equipped to raise, which perpetuates the cycle of poverty and will contribute immensely to our overcrowded foster care system. Abortion is health care and a fundamental right, and denying to federally protect this right is an onslaught on gender equity. While none of the women mentioned today were on the court for the original Roe v. Wade case, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Barrett voted on Dobbs v. Jackson. Barrett agreed with the majority that the Constitution doesn't confer the right to an abortion, while Kagan and Sotomayor voted in the dissent. For personal, political, and religious reasons, women across the country have mixed views on abortion rights, and this disjunction is clearly present among the court's women as well. Wow, there is so much more to dig into here. That's all we're going to cover today. We recognize that this is just the tip of the iceberg, so we encourage any listeners to further educate themselves on the Supreme Court and abortion issues by finding credible sources and having thoughtful conversations. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. We hope you'll join us again next Friday. This is Her Story, where women take you through history.